Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host today, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB, and I'm joined by Kate Wolf, editor-at-large. Hi there. Hi, Kate. Okay, so today we have Vim Vendors in the <laughs> studio, right? I could not believe it when he showed up in the flesh. Tell me about your Vim Vendors personal history. Hmm. I've watched many of his films and enjoyed them immensely. Mm-hmm. But he has a huge filmography. I mean, maybe he's made almost 50 films in 35 years or so, more, 40 years. Yeah. I don't know. So I've probably seen a very small fraction. Yeah. Um, Do you have any favorites? I really enjoyed Pina, I have to say, I a, a few years ago. It was stunning. And I have a soft place in my heart for dance films. So this was a very amazing dance film. So he's here because he has a new documentary out about Pope Francis. It's called Pope Francis, A Man of His Word. And what did you think about this documentary? I was incredibly moved by this documentary. I think you told me you wept throughout, not to blow up your cover, but... No, I don't mind. I did. I really, I wept the entire time, (laughs) almost. I mean, the first 10 minutes, I managed to keep it together. It made me, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but I could imagine becoming a Catholic. Same. Yes. I mean, and then the great thing about Pope Francis is that he's not trying to recruit anybody. He doesn't make you think you have to become a Catholic. It's just, it transcends religion in a way. Uh, Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was so moving is that I think you never see a man particularly in power humble himself so thoroughly Uh, over and over. The the kissing of the feet. So for listeners who should see the movie but haven't yet, there's a lot of footage of Pope Francis washing the feet of prisoners, washing the feet of refugees, and kissing the feet, right? And I just thought that was such a moving gesture. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, And he really is a really incredible man. Oh, yeah. And it's an incredible movie. Yes. Okay, so let's go to our conversation with Vim Vendors and his new film, Pope Francis, A Man of His Word. We have Vim Vendors in the studio with us today. Vendors is a renowned filmmaker, playwright, author, and photographer. His films include classics like Wings of Desire, Paris, Texas, and The American Friend. He's been nominated for Academy Awards for his documentary films, such as Buena Vista Social Club and Pina. His newest documentary is Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, which is in theaters now. Indeed. So, Vim, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me, Medea. I wanted to ask you first, what brought you to the subject of the Pope? I was interested in the man the first time I ever saw him. Actually, before we all ever saw him, on that day he was elected, my nine years of Latin came in handy because it was announced that he had chosen the name of Franciscus, Francis. And I was shocked. I didn't think any pope would ever take on that name because that was gutsy to take on the name. Francis, St. Francis, was a revolutionary in the church, and that name was a promise. But it didn't cross my mind that I was going to meet the man and eventually make a movie with him. I was just following from a distance his first year, and one day I got a letter in my office in Berlin. It had a fancy letterhead from the (laughs) Vatican. My assistant was all excited. 
You got mail from the Vatican. And the letter said, would you be interested in coming and talking to us about a possible project involving Pope Francis? And, wow, I hadn't thought of that, but was I interested? Yes. So a couple of weeks later, I was in Rome and I talked with them to find out that they didn't want to produce or finance or make a film. They just wanted to initiate one and, and thought if it would interest me and if I could make it a project of my own, I should know that this was possible. It would have to be an independent film. They said it's not going to be believable if we produce it. Then it's a commission. You have to just like the idea and write a concept and we're not going to interfere and you produce it and distribute it independently and we'll make sure that you have a very privileged access to the Pope and even to our archives. And all that was too good to be true. So I said yes. Can you tell me a little bit about your own religious upbringing? Catholic. I mean, really Catholic family. My father was a real Catholic believer. His job as a doctor, he did this in a very Christian tradition and way. So I was an altar boy and all of that. You were? Yes, and at the age of 15, 16, I even considered becoming a priest. And But then along came rock and roll and movies and jukeboxes and all these temptations. And, and then I became a student and the year was 68 and I was a socialist and drifted away from the church. And only 20 years later, and after a long detour around the world, came back and realized that I had never really left it, and I still believed in God and a friendly God, and didn't come back as a Catholic. I came back as a Protestant. Really? Mainly because I lived in America, and I was very interested in the life of this Presbyterian church in my neighborhood, and I went there, and then I thought that was great. And only when I moved back to Germany, I sort of, it became a subject, and so I'm now dividing my time between Catholic masses and Protestant services, and I really don't make a big difference, and I try to get the best of all of them. And if you want, I'm an ecumenical Christian. I'm not into all these denomination differences. How did spending time with the Pope make you think about religion maybe at large, and then as it has played out in your own life, do you feel like it reinvigorated your feelings of faith and devotion or the role of religion in larger life? Well, this man was so open, so amazingly open to other people. His best friend is the rabbi of Buenos Aires. He talks to everybody, Muslims and also to atheists. He he is amazingly open and embracing and sees, realizes that spiritual life is also life that is concerned with the others and with community and with what we do to each other and with what we do to our planet, our common home. So He's an outspoken, if you want, so political pope, but his politics is really the common good and not any party, and and he's not representing any interests other than the common good. And I thought that was a beautiful um, way to for a pope to address humanity. And I was extremely impressed by his, both by his honesty and by his courage, because he's facing quite a resistance inside his own church and inside conservative Catholics. Yeah, that was something I was interested in while watching the film, because when you watch the movie, you really touch on the various sort of aspects of the common good that the Pope really works on, right? So one of them is very much the environment. Yep. 
and poverty is the other sort of big issue that he's taken on. Absolutely. And both he inherited from his namesake, from St. Francis. St. Francis was was the first ecologist on the planet. He was mm. the first one to realize that something was going out of whack between nature and man. And he would be, I mean, he would be a fighter for climate change right now, against climate change, I'd rather say. <laughs> and so the legacy of St. Francis is, was really important to Pope Francis. And the other big pillar of St. Francis's work was the solidarity with poor and the outcast. And in his society 800 years ago, it was just starting to show up how societies were going to get divided in, into those who have it all and those who don't participate. Something unbelievable about that work that he does and the legacy following this legacy of St. Francis is that it seems to not be part of the Vatican at large, or that at least was not something that I think was part of the Vatican for a very long time. At least you didn't hear that. Or at least you didn't hear it, right? Yeah, and you weren't aware of that. And and his openness and his love for really all people and his immediacy in his communication did surprise a lot of people. And, and so, I mean, I've listened to him now for almost five years every day and in the editing room and not only to what we shot, but all these other speeches and appearances all over the world. And I must say he truly lives what he preaches. And and over these five years that I'm on his case now, I realized that he's become sort of a lone voice and that all around all these other voices that were there and that people had trust in are disappearing. And, and all of a sudden, there seems to be not many people left who have a certain moral authority to speak to us about change and to speak to us about the basics of of how we live together on this planet. Maybe you could talk a little bit about assembling the film from this archive, because I don't know if how much of a departure that was for you to use someone else's footage. You're such a visual, distinctive filmmaker, but what was it like to go well, through that archive and what kind of stuff did you see in it? It isn't that much of a departure. Like when I did Pina, most of the film was pre-existing. It was Pina's choreography. And a film like Salt of the Earth, it was the photographs of Salgado that were pre-existing. So in a way, this is, I've made several, or the music of the Bonavista Social Club, I've made several films in a row that tried to be at the service of something that I thought was incredibly important and beautiful. And that was the subject of the film. So now it's really the message of Pope Francis and his words. And I did shoot a lot myself. We shot these long talks, these very candid talks. But then again, I couldn't go on all these journeys, and that would have blown our little modest budget. And so I did use a lot of the material, like the American Senate, that was even before I started shooting, or the United Nations, or all his journeys. And I spoke with the two young cameraman who followed him all the time and they're really excellent they also worked on our own shoot so we got to know them and it didn't feel like it was all that foreign that material how much of his day-to-day life is documented is he filmed every day or he's filmed whenever he goes on a journey okay and he's filmed whenever he's on an official duty not all his meetings in the vatican are filmed i mean some are very private but as soon as he goes out, and, and if he visits refugees or goes into a prison or 
hospital. Even then, not always it's fun, but most of the time when he's traveling, there's camera crews and he's used to being followed. And especially when he goes on a long journey like to the US or South America or Asia, there's also other TV crews following him. So we had material from all over the world and from television stations all over. And that was good that we had this because it sort of proved that he wasn't only that man when we talked to me, but he was the same man when he acted in the world. What was it like to meet him? What is the process of going in to meet the Pope? What do you do? Well... What do you wear? <laughs> we we were a little nervous, all of us, before the first interview. And, and I told my crew, listen, this is not an actor we're going to have in front of us, so nothing he's doing, we will ask him to do twice, and he's not going to get makeup. And if any of you fucks up, then it's our fault, but I cannot go and say, could you please do that again or say that again? So we're all very on our toes. And, and then the man came in on his own, totally alone, looked at everybody, smiled, and started to shake hands with each and everybody of the crew, change a few words, look them in the eye, spend time with everybody, not making a difference if that was electrician or producer and director. He didn't make a difference between important, quote-unquote, or not important. And that helped us a lot to lose our nervousness, and I explained to him. He looked at the set we had prepared and was a little amazed. There was only his chair, and there was not a chair in front of him but only a monitor, and he said, well, you're going to be, because obviously he was ready that we had a one-on-one close talk, and there was only one chair, and then I explained it to him, well, I want to sort of share that privilege that we are face-to-face with the audience, and I'm going to be on that screen in front of you, and you'll look me in the eye, and by doing so, you will actually see everybody in the eye and then he wanted to know where you sit and I showed him behind the camera that was my seat and I also had a monitor in front of me and then he got it and he was completely ready for that and we still were very close and intimately and it was one-on-one but that we had that technology in between that now allows everybody in every movie theater to be face-to-face with them. so we had no more nervousness especially as he was First of all, so humble and gentle, and second, answering everything so readily and spontaneously and thoroughly. So after we did it four times, we did it four times two hours, and at the end we all felt we knew him so well, and it also felt like he knew each and every one of us. listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and now back to our conversation with Vin Venders about his new film, Pope Francis, A Man of His Word. Something I, I wanted to ask you about is you've documented many people who you could call masters towards the end of their, or later in life, Pina Bosch, you know, the, the Japanese filmmaker that you made a documentary about. Ozu, yeah. Yeah, the members of the Buena Vista Social Club, and, and now the Pope, who seems as though he is kind of a master of spiritual faith. Um, uh, what do you think these people have in common, and what draws you to, you know, spend time with them and be with them? And um, how do you think, you know, in terms of how your own work has progressed as you've gotten older and you've become 
more uh, of a master yourself. What do you think time kind of has to do with it? Well, they are indeed masters, and I was able to meet some of them. My Japanese hero, the director Ozu, had long died when I made this film about him. The guys of the Bonavista Social Club were quite aged. They're all in their 80s when we make, made the movie, but they were real masters of an almost obsolete or lost art. And Pina invented a whole new art form and produced something so beautiful. I'd never seen anything else like it on this planet, and I just wanted to share this with as many people as possible. And that has been a lot the impulse of of my movies, to share something that I really respected and loved. And same with the photography of Salgado. I think everybody should know his photographs, and everybody should know that this man who photographed the horror of this planet was saved from this horror by his encounter with nature. And uh, and being close to Pope Francis was a little bit the same. He's not an artist, so to speak. But but you can call him an artist. You can Isn't call him an artist of the sorts. common good and a spiritual master. And as that is something that sort of is so needed today, I thought it was really worthwhile dedicating my craft and my film and, and what I'm doing for a number of years to his word. Have you, is the way you work over, over the years streamlined and, and changed, or is it this very much you know, the same process as when you started out? It's never the same process. I mean, this film with the Pope really had its own rules, and it had to find its own language, and it was like never nothing had ever done before. I mean, this film would stick out in anybody's filmography like, like a sore thumb, because, I mean... It is a film you only do once in your life, and I was. It wasn't that easy sometimes because there was a lot of responsibility attached to it. And as the Vatican completely kept out of it and never interfered at all, I was really left to my own devices. And in between, I was a little desperate because I could go so many ways. And you have a hell of a responsibility if the man in front of you is the Pope, and you have no parameters. And in the end, my, my the only person in the world who really helped me was my wife, telling me, well, look at it this way. You rehearsed 30 years to make this movie, so you should remember you are really up to it. <laughs> one of the, um, so in, in making of the movie and one of the decisions that you made that I found somewhat surprising was the reenactments of St. Francis. Because that can be a little bit tricky uh, of a... Uh, <laughs> You can say decision. that again. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, why did you decide? How did you decide to to do the reenactments of? I felt that my enthusiasm that this pope had taken on the name was something that maybe not everybody knew the background of. And for me, Saint Francis was the hero of my childhood. He was the only saint that I could attach a name to. He was the guy who talked to the birds and called moon and sun and all the trees and all the animals, brothers and sisters, that really animated my my imagination. So I felt I had to sort of make it understood what is that legacy of St. Francis. And I looked at all the movies, and there's quite a number mm-hmm. in, the, in the history of cinema, but none of them was really compact and did what I wanted to do. So 
I realized we had to do it somehow ourselves and recreate a few scenes out of the life of St. Francis, except that we had no money. We mm -hmm. had no art department to speak of. We had done this movie, and that had been one of my principles. We have to do a poor film. We can make an, an expensive film with a man who preaches poverty. So we made the film with no means, basically. And then doing a historic reenactment seemed a little tall order because all we had was three actors and the landscape around Assisi, but no means to do any, to build anything or do any, change anything for, for historic accuracy or anything. So I, in the end, came up with the idea to shoot this with an old camera from the 1920s, an oh, actual, wow. actual hand cranker, because that camera, whatever it looks at, it, it turns everything in, way into the past, and it made these three actors and the few scenes, the few mo landscapes and buildings we see, it makes them all look so old that nobody questions that it, this is actually 13th century. But if you look closely, you see cars in the background, but that camera is very forgiving. Maybe you could talk about the difference between making a film like this and making more the you've 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 worked so much in both documentary and non fiction feature films um you're saying that this film you had no budget but just in terms of process how different is it for you to make documentary versus fiction features and um do you have a preference for either of those or well i've always loved being able to change from one to the other and move from the realm of fiction to documentaries and my fictional films from the beginning have also been really driven by a sense of reality and by as much reality as possible that could flow into it into them and that gets more and more difficult these days I mean when I started as a filmmaker I was able to do fictional films without a script and just invent them on the way on the go and that is totally out of the question today nobody if me would let me do a film without a script a fictional film so today, fiction is so much more um, controlled, and I feel that you have so much more freedom in a documentary film, and the form is so much more open, and you can explore so much more. I still love fiction, but it's getting increasingly more and more difficult. And in the today's landscape, fictional films also tend more and more towards fantasy or towards films that really offer something spectacular and uh, the spectacular is not exactly my cup of tea. <laughs> I like everyday life a lot. Although my last fictional film is in cinemas too for a few months already. It's called Submergence with Alicia Vikander and James McAvoy. It was shot all over the world and in Africa and it deals with contemporary phenomena like Islamic violence and stuff. But it is still a much more different ballgame fiction today and so much more com competition. And it seems that the realm of documentary is so much more needed today because we're so much facing all sorts of fictitious things that reality-driven films, I don't know, I have a feeling they're more needed today. Yeah. So I like them. Yeah, yeah. After spending time with the Pope, I wondered, watching the film, the message is so strong, and it made it's it's so energizing, and you feel like okay, the, the problems of the world can be solved. You know, this this man has the answer. I mean, to some degree, that's how I felt watching it. But when you walking away from that, you know, do you have a new resolve towards 
pressing issues of the world, or do you feel that it's not really your place? I do feel, and now I really had the privilege to be close to the man, but then again we translated it into closeness with everybody. And he, and that is what I walk away from, he was so contagious in his positive outlook. He is such an he has such a great positive spirit and such an optimistic energy. It's really contagious and it did rub off on all of us who worked in the film and I hope it does to the audience. He does have something that makes you feel, well, it's, we can still do a lot and we can change a lot and we should actually. And he he does call for nothing less than some sort of moral revolution today and I don't see anybody else who'd be more authorized to do so. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Vim Vendors. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios. We've been talking to Vim Vendors about his new film, Pope Francis, A Man of His Word. And now for this week's book recommendation. have Hanif Abdurraqib, author of the essay collection They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, in the studio today to give us a book recommendation. Hanif, what are you going to recommend? I've been diving really hard into Ellen Willis's work, which there's a really good collected, like The Essential Ellen Willis, which is kind of massive. and It's enormous. It's pretty enormous. Yeah. She, you know, it's she beautiful. It is, yeah. It's a, it's a nice book to have. She's like very prolific. She wrote for like Village Voices in the 80s, 90s. But a smaller book, which is good in like more manageable is No More Nice Girls, which is like a okay. book of like countercultural essays, it says, that was released in like 94, 92, 93, 94, one of those years. And it's like, it's less about music, which I think Ellen Willis is like most known for, and kind of about the shifting modes of feminism through the 70s and then at the turn of the decade in the 80s. And I found my way to it later, after reading The Essential. And when was that? When did I find my way to it? Yeah. Last year, someone gave it okay, to me. Okay, recent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And so I've been really hyped on it. I've been really hyped on, like, her eye as a critic is just really sharp no matter what she's taking on. And I think the true work of the critic, if you are a good critic, is to apply the critical eye to everything in equal measure. And mm-hmm. so she is certainly better at writing about music than anything else. But there's also not much of a distance between, like, her critical style through the lens of critiquing feminism mm-hmm. than, than there is with music. So I really value that. Is there any particular essay that, that stood out to you from the collection? No, and here's why. Because mm-hmm. I think this is a collection that everything is so interwoven that I think it has to be read as like one piece of work. Like a sing- yeah. It's almost like a book-length essay. It's almost like The Devil Finds Work, that James Baldwin like film thing, where it's like mm-hmm. it almost has to be read like that, where it's just like a singular arc, essay arc. Will you tell us again what the collection is and the author? Ellen Willis is the author, and the collection is No More Nice Girls. Thank you so much, Hanif. Thank you. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. 
During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. <laughs>